Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hi, Doc. Hello, Christina. How are you? <laughs> Absolutely, simply awesome. What a day, huh? <laughs> it's going to be a great day. I'm very excited today. Why I'm is bouncing that? already. Oh, really? How high? Um, pretty high. Not bad. Not bad. I mean, Not bad? It's, we're just getting this going, right? Okay. Yes. Well, we're going for the record today. We, uh, we are going to go for the record. Why not? I, I, am, a... I am putting our guest, you know, in a very tight spot now. <laughs> very special. We have a very special guest today. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And today we're going to look at two things that we haven't really looked at before. One, we're going to interview someone with a specialty that we haven't uh, looked at yet, a physician's assistant. And two, we're going to look at the uh, category of mental health. Mm. Very important. But before we do, Christina, yeah, and I, there's a lot going to come out in this one, Christina. <laughs> you already know. Uh-huh. You're, you're exhibiting signs of behavior. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that it's only now <laughs> that you've noticed. <laughs> I fell back. I didn't want to rush to judgment. I see. <laughs> After three years, huh, Glenn? <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember it was interesting that, uh, you know, when you talked, they talked to a Chinese consulate once or a Chinese uh, philosopher once, and he asked him what he thought. This is re- in recent times. He asked him what he thought of the French Revolution. And he said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, uh, plenty of time. Plenty of time. Three years, nothing. Three years is nothing. Okay. Nothing. Okay. Next lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do people get in touch with us, Christina? Okay. So, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment. And simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, just know that even if you're listening to this show a year or two um, uh, ahead of time and ahead of time. Um, but after we have recorded it, you can still ask your question. We will make sure that we will get it to our guest or Dr. Woolman, or we will answer it and uh, definitely get back to you. And if you are listening to this on one of your devices, your iPhone or Android, um, simply call us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Now, just be sure to leave our contact information so that we can get back to you then as well. Thank you, Doc. You're welcome. Let's get rocking and rolling here, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I start to, I've started to give some st- statistics mm. uh, as we start each show. And today, mental health, something we haven't spoken about before, mm-hmm. really. I mean, we allude to it all the time. Yes. But we really haven't focused on it. And in fact, we're going to have a, a few uh, interviews. An upcoming interview is going to be with Dr. James Lake, a psychiatrist, but not only a psychiatrist, an integrative psychiatrist. So that's going to be pretty fascinating. But today we're going to be speaking with someone on the front lines of mental health. This is Jeffrey Schwartz. He is a PA, a board-certified PA, a physician's assistant. We want to find out what that exactly is as we go on, but we're also going to find out what it's like working in a psych ward in an emergency department, also um, a hospital ward, and also an outpatient. So we're going to see uh, mental health from a number of points of view today, and I couldn't think of a better way to start than introducing our next guest, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. I'm calling you doctor. I'm going to call you Lord later, maybe, Jeffrey. And <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I'm hallucinating already just thinking about this. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Schwartz. Mm, Welcome hi, to our show. I'm supposed to correct everyone who says doctor and say PA, and I'll do that once. Okay, PA and, uh, Schwartz? <laughs> Jeffrey is fine. That's what everyone calls me. PA Schwartz sounds like a uh, department store. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what are you selling, Jeffrey? <laughs> mm, mental health, I guess. Ah. Is that expensive or are there bargain deals on Groupon? It depends on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked at a statistic the other day and I saw that 42.5 million American adults or about 20%, one in five, suffer from some form of mental illness. 
That's pretty impressive. 42 million people, American adults, and we're not even talking about kids, and certainly kids are not uh, immune to mental health problems. So this is going to be interesting today, Jeffrey, and you're going to be the one that represents all of physicians' assistants on the planet forever, so no pressure there. <laughs> I thought I'm going to be representing all the mentally ill people. We're, well, we'll judge that. Christine and I will judge that as we move on. We'll, we'll give you a rating, like a, a 6.8 or a 9 for a mentally insufficient act that we see. <laughs> If you look at the statistics from the uh, National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, they put the number of Americans who have mental illness at about 60, 61 and a half million, about one in four. So it always <laughs> depends on who's doing the statistics, but that's still a lot of people. One in four? One in four. <clears throat> and and the, the really sad statistic is that of those, about 60% never get any treatment. Uh, and so in the emergency room in, in Brooklyn, where I work, uh, there's a mixture of people who have never seen anyone who has serious mental illness. People have seen, seen psychiatrists and been in hospitals many times. And then people who come in, uh, especially kids who just said the wrong things and don't, not really mentally ill, but the mm -hmm. system, you know, if you say anything that I you know, read a poem about suicide 10 years ago, they might be sent in to be evaluated. Mm -hmm. Just trying to cut back on that, though. Yeah, that would be good. We don't want to be... A, we have enough people with mental illness. We don't want to bring in people that are actually healthy. Mm. <clears throat> There's a significant portion of people who go to an emergency department who have very little wrong and probably shouldn't be there, but that's also part of our system. Um, but there are many people who are uninsured. So if they have something that we would mm. consider relatively minor, they don't have anywhere else to go. So, you know, if they have a splinter or a little cut, there's, there's no one they can ask. So that's one of the issues that, that anyone who runs an emergency department does because there are people who really have emergencies and then there are people who think they have emergencies but no, have nowhere else to go. Mm. And so the medical people see them and I see them also. And part of my job is to decide... Um, well, essentially, I have one job in the emergency room and decide who's safe, who's safe to go home, uh, who's safe to live independently in the community, and who's not. And then if they're not, are they able to understand that they're not safe? Or you know, can I talk to them and give them options? Mm. So that in, per in terms of emergencies, and people will come in in various kinds of crises. And that's true. In, that's why we're there in emergency medicine. So um, most of the time, the, except for pediatrics, in the pediatric emergency room, the residents will filter out the, the people who really just don't need to see me, although I'm always happy to talk to someone who's stressed out and talk about stress reduction. I mean, that's part of medicine and psychiatry. Uh, so I'll see a, a broad gambit of people who just can't sleep, who are anxious because they're stressed, and people who are so severely mentally ill that they just can't communicate at all. Mm. Wow. Yeah, we're going to get into all of that. I think one of the things, and I worked in the emergency department, uh, one of the things from my own mental health and the mental health of all the doctors and nurses that I worked with, for many years we would struggle with someone that would come into the emergency department with something that we didn't consider an emergency. And it became frustrating because we wanted to take care of emergencies. Right. But, but the best way we finally dealt with that is say, you know, in, in each of their minds, they believe it's an emergency, right. so let's, let's deal with it. Jeffrey, before we get into some of the deep things, sure. I want to learn a little bit about you for a few minutes. Uh, what got you interested in being a healer? And then what brought you to being a physician's assistant, hmm. and then what brought you to mental health in the specialty? So many answers to that, just like there's many answers to how any particular individual becomes the person they, they are. Um, I grew up on the fringes of the South Bronx, so um, that led to two things. Uh, one, um, because of all the gangs and violence, 
I had to run a lot, so I probably would have been about four feet eight, but now I'm six feet tall, so I'm kind of stretched out. So that was one of the good things. But the other thing is, is and this was this was in the in the '60s and '70s. Um, it was really a broken in terms of of uh, <clears throat> city engineering. It was broken. I mean, there were so many like dangerous 12, 13, 14-year-olds who were holding most of the neighborhoods in the South Bronx captive because they were too afraid to go outside. Mm. And I didn't want my children, if I ever had them, to have to grow up in a world like that. So that was probably one of the first steps. The other thing is being a curious person, I would go outside the local doctor's offices and look in their trash and I would fish out their anatomy books and their medical texts and I would just be fascinated by the complexity of the, of the human organism. Uh, so that was probably my introduction to medicine and to dumpster diving, which of course I'm addicted to now uh, and have continued to be. You're a track star and a dumper, dumpster diver. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, no, are they, now so but that wasn't really a good career move. So, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think probably another step was that I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which is a specialized high school with fancy tests, and somehow they lowered their standards and let me in. But uh, one of the speakers um, was a man called Roman Vishniak. Um, he's no longer with us, but he had uh, initially photographed the Jews before the Nazis, and he eventually became a, a microphotographer specializing in um, microscopic ocean life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the 70s, you had bio classes, and you would take apart mice and rats, and you wouldn't think twice about it. So Dr. Vishniak, who I'm told at the time... Um, had 12 PhDs and spoke 22 languages, but he was a very humble man. So he would he would show us slides of these microorganisms that he prepared because he had been working in Woodhull um, National Laboratories up in Rhode Island, and he would show us the slides, and they would all be live, never stained. And then he told us that he would then put it back in a bucket, drive it from New York back to Woodhull, and put them back where they came from, uh, unharmed. And that was the first time I saw the, the interchange between science and compassion. Oh, and beautiful. I was really touched by that. And that and him being a brilliant man. Wow. So I love that. was that. kind of another yes. step. So, Excellent. Uh, I like that, uh, between science and compassion. Uh, so now you decided to become... How did you become or decide to become a PA? Uh, what was the draw to that? And also tell us after that, what, what are the criteria? What's the education requirements to become a PA? And would you recommend it to people that are watching the show? Sure. So how I became a, a PA. Um, <clears throat> the, and a psych PA, probably the first step was that having graduated from Sarah Lawrence with a liberal arts education and having no practical skills. And in fact, I think they prided themselves on that. Although it was a (laughs) wonderful school because it focused on independent studies and there was no curriculum. Bronx science was very um, organized and there was really not a lot of choice. And so the year after that, I actually took a, a, a year off. And then I, I studied Tai Chi, which I became fascinated about and eventually started teaching. So I got introduced to Chinese medicine. And the other thing is that um, I took temporary jobs, and it didn't take much time to realize I didn't want to spend the rest of my life stuffing envelopes. <laughs> so I decided mm-hmm. to go to school, and I went to Sarah Lawrence. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I, I studied with a, a Professor James Zito um, was Shakespeare. And I, one of the assignments we had was to take one paragraph and, and write about it. So I took one paragraph from a, a Shakespeare play, and I stopped 32 pages later. And <laughs> I, besides, it was beautiful, but the unfolding complexity was just wonderful. And people like that. <clears throat> 
you know, you have a surface impression and then you talk to them. And then there's more and more and more and deeper and deeper levels that you get to unravel. So uh, after I graduated college and I had other wonderful experiences, um, I had a background of science from Bronx Science and I had started taking some photography courses. So I uh, got a job in a newspaper, it was called Soho Weekly News, it was defunct in the 80s, mm. as a darkroom assistant. Um, and because of my techiness, uh, not long after I started as an assistant, I redesigned and took over their darkroom, and then I became a photo editor, and then a photojournalist. And as a photojournalist, you learn to get people to tell you their stories in a very time-sensitive way, and people might be in a crisis, and you just have a few minutes to get the story, take the photograph, which often they don't want to be, although I, I was very fortunate and photographed a lot of dance, theater, and music, and wonderful people, but you have a very limited time, and so you learn how to get their story in, in a very efficient manner, and that really served me well eventually when I went into psychiatry. But the last step um, was, oh, um, after photojournalism, which really doesn't pay very well, I became a commercial photographer and my heart just wasn't in it. I have this thing that I'm not really happy unless I'm helping people, which is probably the whole part of that whole journey. Uh, I took a vacation while I was trying to figure out the next step and went to Breckenridge, Colorado, which is a beautiful place. Mm. And uh, I learned a very important lesson um, that if you don't know how to roller skate, you shouldn't try to learn on the side of a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so inevitably, um, <laughs> I with my skates on and my camera bag, um, I would fall and hit my butt and fall and hit my butt, and eventually I fell forward and protected my camera equipment, and I did that well, but I broke my wrist, which wasn't a big deal. And it, it, in my defense, the air is really thin up there, so clearly... <laughs> I wasn't responsible for what I was doing. There's no defense, Jeffrey. No, that is true. Although, um, one of the things that came out of that is they renamed the mountain that I was on, and they now call it Mount Stupid. But, uh, I went down to the bottom. They do a, a lot of skiing in, in Breckenridge, and there was this little medical clinic, and there was this lovely young woman who was the medical person, and she was a PA, and I had never met a PA before and she was covering the clinic because her boss who was an MD and also uh, an Ayurvedic practitioner mm. was apparently dressed up as a human condom and going from <laughs> bar to bar talking about STDs so she was in charge uh, and wait so, wait which one was going dressed as a condom the uh, the PA's boss Oh, okay, the MD, the MD, as you would, the MD, MD. Uh, so this nice young woman, she set my arm. It wasn't a big deal, and she was living in this beautiful place. And while the doctor was out, she was running the clinic. And again, way back from my days uh, fishing doctors' books out of the trash, I was interested in medicine, and I wanted to continue doing my photography because I had been my life. But I saw this thing where maybe. I could do some medicine and continue doing my photography. So uh, at that point, I had already done essentially pre-med before, but it had been so long because I was in my 30s. One of the, the um, interesting things about a PA is that many of us uh, have this as a second career. So I had a, a, a depth of career experience, photojournalism, uh, other things, which I then bring to being a PA. And um, I retook my uh, pre-med classes. And at, at that point, PA school was about two years, a very intense two years, where I'm told you compress four years of medical school mm. into two years, which I loved because I'm fascinated by medicine, you know, as clearly you all are. And then I graduated two years later as a PA. Now, at that point, PAs were at the baccalaureate level. Actually, I have two bachelor's degree. Um, but now everything is shifting towards a master level, so they tend to be a little bit longer. And essentially, you 
go to PA school instead of medical school. And instead of what a doctor does, which was which is to go through residency training, a PA will then just start practicing with whatever doctor he or she finds to work with. And it's very much like the John Dewey progressive education, you learn by doing. You, you, you are set up with an understanding of the medical process and the vocabulary. And then depending on whatever kind of doctor you're with, your uh, practice is covered by their skill level. So if I was, had found myself with an orthopedic, um, my license would cover anything that doctor does in orthopedics. By accident, in, in a way, um, I found myself working in medicine in a psychiatry department, and I just loved it because there was all these puzzles for me to solve, and uh, that's how I started in psychiatry, although it, it really did sort of lead inevitably there. And as a, a biographical note, uh, and studies have shown this is this is true with a lot of people who go into mental health, although not everybody. Often people who go into mental health have either their own mental health issues or have family members. And my mother had bipolar disorder and had been hospitalized many times. And if you see someone you love suffering, um, mm. you want to figure out how to help and not only help them, but help others. And so although I, I wandered into a psych department somewhat accidentally, I, oh, it was almost as if all my experiences had led me there to prepare me to help those people. And, you know, uh, apparently I had some skills in that area. So you've been doing this for about 17 years now? 17, I think it's my 18th year now. 18th year. And in that time, you've uh, rotated for various reasons between uh, an inpatient, an outpatient, and an emergency department within the psych facilities. Is that correct? When I first started, in my first year, um, I was doing the medical workups, the very basic medical workups for the psych patients. Right. And then as I got more involved with the department, I started doing psychiatric consultations in between my medical work. And then at a certain point, I started helping with the consults in the emergency department. And then at a certain point, uh, I started having my own outpatients. And so then I would rotate through inpatient, uh, outpatient, emergency department work and consult work, depending on where I was needed by the department. And, and right now, I spend probably 90% of my time in the adult or pediatric emergency department, and the rest of the time, I would be doing various medical consults on the, on the medical floor of the hospital that I work at. So you see a pretty good example of uh, the general mental illness that society uh, produces or uh, offers to us, correct? Probably, yes. So when you started out and to now, see if you can give us a perspective on mental illness 17, 18 years ago, mental illness today, uh, in terms of just the mental illness itself, and then we'll get into the treatment or what society has to offer mental illness or people with mental disorders. Shall I start today or shall I start 2,000 years ago? I would like you to start uh, 2,000 years ago. Okay, so <laughs> were, you, were you in dumpsters? They didn't even have dumpsters then, no, did they? No, of course not. 2,000 no. years ago or more, both in the Neanderthal areas and in Mesoamerica, we find these skulls with holes bored in them. Um, the modern word is trephination. And mm -hmm. the assumption is that what they were doing with people with mental illness was trying to leave let the spirits, the evil spirits, go out. Um, we also know that sometimes people had multiple treatments like this mm -hmm. because there were multiple boreholes. Uh, when, when, mm -hmm. One can't imagine what that kind of treatment was like. So that was probably the first psychiatric treatment. Um, if you then, I would say, I would say also that probably for maybe trauma to the uh, brain also would be maybe another reason to allow the fluids and the. Uh, mm. The uh, blood, things like that, out. But uh, interestingly, I would think that letting the spirits out, maybe we should bring that back. But I got to tell it's you, if, I, if you possible. weren't if you weren't crazy, 
before they bore that hole, <laughs> you would be pretty crazy after. Well, it seemed to work because there aren't too many more Neanderthals around. <laughs> so well, that's that, true. That, drill, we, drill a few holes in someone's head, and they're not going to have any mental health complaints sooner or later. <laughs> um, in in the 1500s, there's a. Um, a painting by Hieronymus Bosch, who has those complicated paintings with all kinds, of, with hundreds of little figures doing things, and this is uh, a simple one with um, one very unhappy-looking man, two big guys on holding him down, and a third with a big auger drilling a hole, um, which was the Middle Ages version of this, and it's entitled "Removing the Stone of Folly." Uh, so. Insanity was thought to be this physical object. And so a lot of the treatment of psychiatry, which has evolved somewhat, has to do with how you conceptualize what it is. And then we went through periods where it was bad air or you were a witch or cursed. And a lot of our prejudice about mental illness comes from that age that you had to have done something wrong to be punished in that way. And that's one of the unfortunate things that's left over is that people are either afraid of or think that there's something really bad about people with mental illness, which is not true. They're, they're sick like people with diabetes are sick. So in the 1950s, the first medical treatments were uh, discovered by accident. Uh, and then a new age. It, w it was like the development of penicillin was in medicine. And so by the 70s, there were still evolving ideas about what psychiatry was about. Um, and in the 80s, and I started practicing in the 90s. And um, there were different medications, different treatments. And that evolved towards treatment that were uh, less and less um, painful, less intrusive, had less side effects, and now we're started entering the age where we're beginning to understand genetics and realize that medication is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and there were always two streams, the, the therapists who will talk to people and the psychiatrist who would prescribe. Uh, in the 1900s, People like Freud were both. You would prescribe and you would talk. We know that our medications can change your brain chemistry and put things back into balance. We also know that talking to someone in the right way can rebalance someone's brain chemistry. So those two streams have been <clears throat> developing. And, and now there's the addition of genetics, uh, which we're just starting to understand. So we've come a long way from drilling holes in people's skulls, I hope. Um, but we still have a long way to go. And, and a lot of it has to do with relating to the person and what their problems are and being compassionate and just wanting to help them in any way you can. That was a... A really nice perspective, uh, right from the beginning to now. I really liked and appreciated that. Uh, and I think we're going to see even more now that we see the improvement in neuroimaging and functional MRIs. We're going to be able to see a lot more in mental illness and the treatment of mental illness, uh, recognitions of it, etc., so I'm, I'm very excited about that part of it. Uh, certainly the drugs and the talking are very important, but there's got to be more to it than that. Uh, we have to look at it from many points of view now, and I think we're starting to get that. When, when you see people coming in, one of the problems we always had in the emergency department is, and you mentioned this before, you said um, that... Uh, we had to make sure if people were safe. Well, it was, there was another part to that also for us. It was not just if they were safe, but are they a harm to themselves or a harm to other people? And it was those two criteria that made us decide whether we let them out or we kept them under observation for a certain amount of time. But once we decided that they were uh, someone that was unsafe either to themselves or to others, then it became a real challenge to find a psychiatrist, find a bed for them. There were always hospital beds for somebody with a fracture or a heart attack, but it didn't seem like there were a lot of 
uh, beds and people ready to admit a psychiatric patient. That was very difficult for us. Is that the same for you in New York right now? Um, it's a complicated question because it depends on the circumstances of the person in their life. Um, there, there are always a limited number of beds in any particular hospital. There's also figuring out what parts of the person's crisis are chemical which are and which are social. We have a lot of uh, homeless people coming in who um, about one study showed that about 30% of homeless have mental illness. So uh, it's with them, the problem isn't always that they have schizophrenia or bipolar or depression. It's that being homeless is awful and it's very stressful. And yes, I could admit them into a bed for two weeks, but then what do you do? There are some interesting trials in some other states. I think Virginia is one where they're trying to figure out ways uh, before someone gets into the hospital to divert them from the emergency room to uh, a mental health facility, um, which helps with the hospital beds and also uh, helps the people. And and it's very interesting, and I'm looking to see how that might eventually be used in New York, but we're not there yet. So it's always a question of you have limited resources, you have many, many, many people with many, many different kinds of needs coming in, um, and who would most benefit from what you have. You know, we're about halfway through the show. Why don't you give us a definition of what you consider mental illness? Oh, dear. Mental illness. <laughs> um, and and don't, point, don't point to anyone across from you. <laughs> I'd be pointing at myself first. <laughs> uh, someone who's mentally ill is someone who's out of balance with themselves and their environment. Someone who cannot function uh, in whatever their living situation that it is. Either they're so depressed that they don't have the energy or the will to do anything, or um, they're so psychotic that they don't understand what's real and what's not real, and therefore they can't take care of themselves. So uh, mental illness is that in some way your brain is not functioning to the extent that uh, you don't know how to live, you don't know how to connect to other people, and, and you need help. And that's different for different people in different circumstances. It seems uh, when we look at, there's a manual out, though, uh, what's it called, the SDM? Uh, um, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's the sort of dictionary of psychiatry that's been going through revisions since the 50s. I think the initial um, impetus was just there were so many different psychiatrists. There were Jungians, Freudians, and they all called things different names. And someone would get into the hospital, and you would have no idea what each particular doctor was talking about. So Mm -hmm. in the 50s, they decided we really should come together and decide what do we mean by depression? What do we mean by schizophrenia? What do we mean by bipolar? Uh, And that is both a medical and uh, a social political process. So, for instance, in the DSM-3, being homosexual was considered being mentally ill. And now you look back on that, and that's an embarrassment. Uh, And that was taken out. And there's uh, a new DSM, uh, which is now DSM-5, and a new one comes out about every 10, 15 years, which is trying to classify things more on an empiric basis. And the idea is to try to be able to know how to treat somebody. My sense is that the next generations of the DSM, um, instead of having names like depression, they'll have the names of genetic sequences. And so we know, okay, this person 
would benefit from this medication, this kind of talking, this kind of exercise, but we're not quite there yet. So we're trying to go in the direction of really understand what we mean by mental illness. So when you ask me that question, that's been the answer to that has been evolving, and it's still evolving, which is why I hesitated for a moment. So what the the names of things are ten years from now, and um, the the treatments of them might be significantly different than now. But essentially, it's how is the person able to function? So if it's not from a medical reason, and if it's not strictly from a social reason, which there is a component of that, so then ruling everything out, you think, okay, this must be then psychiatry. The person is saying that they're seeing things or they, they want to die because life uh, isn't worth living. And Sometimes by the process of elimination, you decide what has to be psychiatry. We in psychiatry are first medical people, and our first order of business is to make sure the person isn't medically sick. Because if you have an infection, you can still be seeing things, hearing things, get very depressed. But in that case, the, uh, the treatment isn't psychiatric medication. It's having a doctor figure out that you're sick or some other kind of healer and... Um, help them that way. It's when those don't work uh, and someone is very depressed or not in control of their behavior, um, that's when psychiatry gets involved. Yeah, that was also very good. And I think the uh, history is going to show improvements, as you brought up, for example, homosexuality as a disease. Many uh, things like that. And I, I would recommend, actually, that people go out and take a look at this manual just to see how many different things we see out there that are mental disorders. And, you know, mm. many years ago, we didn't consider post-traumatic stress disorder. Now we have ADHD. We have so many different things right. that are out there that it's it's actually pretty fascinating to see what the human condition can create in terms of balance, and, and there's I, also a, there's always a social context of what you consider um, odd <clears throat> from 2,000 years ago to now, and then how you whether the person I mean you're this is we we had uh, one of our previous uh, chairman in our department uh, who was from India who's brilliant man uh, and he said this is America it's your right to be crazy if you want to be. So, uh, <laughs> someone who's eccentric, um, you're not necessarily going to treat them for psychiatry. And also, uh, one of the places when I was an undergraduate, I did some research at uh, a teaching hospital that had their own psychiatric emergency room. And I remember this really nice lady would come in. Uh, now, I was an undergrad. I was doing a statistical research um, about how people were helped or not helped in a psychiatric emergency room. So I would see all the people that um, the skilled residents um, couldn't do anything with. So this one lady came in, and we were talking, and I was, uh, at, at this point I was in a psychology class, um, I was in my late teens, I didn't know nothing about psychiatry, and we were talking about what she does, and then eventually it came up that in her closet, she had little green men that she would talk to. And, you know, the first thing I thought of, this lady is really sick, she needs help. And, but even then I realized it's not that someone is different or having these strange experiences, it's what it means to them. So I, I assumed it would be scary, like Martians or something. And she said, oh, no, no, they're smiling, they keep me company. And I realized that that was, other than coming to the emergency room, that was for her social contact. And to give her medication, to mm-hmm. take that away without giving her something else would have been cruel. And and the res- and this was in the 70s. The residents real- realized that. And so she would be able to come into the emergency room whenever she wanted. That was her social contact. And the question about, well, it, she really didn't need to be medicated, but she did need some human contact. And so that, for her, was a very valuable service. And it was also clear that not everyone needs to be treated for having unusual experiences. Uh, well said. I really like that. Yeah. 
I think nowadays, in more modern times, we'd see little minions in our closet. <laughs> Probably. Especially if you keep a banana in there. That's banana. True. Banana. <laughs> and when I would have outpatients, people who would see shadows or hear voices, um, the first thing I would ask them is, does it bother you? And some people would say, no. And I would tell them, well, there are various ways you can get rid of them if you wanted to. We have these medications, but they have side effects. You could talk to someone, or uh, you could just come and see me in nine months or whatever you have a problem. And I would say, well, you, you know, I, I wouldn't start any medication on you. Mm-hmm. There were other people with exactly the same symptoms who were terrified. And I would tell them the same things. You know, there's talking, there's exercise and lifestyle changes, there's medications. But maybe you'd like to try this medication. It does have these side effects. You can might be a little stiff, and your mouth be might be a little dry. But see if you're less afraid living at home. So there's always that. It's always a mindful intelligent process deciding how to help someone it shouldn't be like a cookbook someone comes in and you give this chemical it it um that would be uh, that wouldn't be healing uh, you bring up some good points and again when we in medicine see somebody we always try to figure out a differential diagnosis and i always taught uh, my medical students and other physicians that even if you think they have a psychiatric or psychological uh, problem, first think of medical causes. And when you can't find a medical cause, then, yes. then go to the psychological, mental, psychiatric uh, order. When I, was on, uh, when I was in medical school, I did a rotation on psychiatry, and part of my rotation, I signed up to work on a lockdown ward where the, the most serious schizophrenics, paranoid schizophrenics, catatonics, waxy catatonics, uh, severely depressed people were on this ward. And I would be in there with them, locked in a room with, say, 20 people for a few hours at a time. These people uh, were hearing voices, seeing things, speaking in tongues, and I realized I was in the minority there. I was the only one not hearing the voices, not seeing the hallucinations, not understanding each, each of them when they were speaking in tongues. And it made me realize how fragile and thin the line was between mental illness and being allegedly normal. And as one, one of the important parts of my job is teaching medical students. And as I'll sometimes tell them when I'm not sure what's going on, I'll just have my voices talk to their voices and we'll figure things out. <laughs> I like that. Speaking about medical students, uh, what are you teaching them these days about uh, mental health and treatment of mental health? So I teach uh, both a survey course of how to approach someone with mental illness and um, psychopharmacology with a focus on emergency psychiatry. So um, to my mind, the most important thing isn't the chemistry. It's how to figure out how to communicate with another human being and figure out what's going on. Uh, and so one is observation uh, and communication. I was reading an article about the detection of deception in forensic psychiatry. Forensic psychiatry is where um, the law or criminality is involved. And that particular article talked about how uh, something like 85% of human communication is nonverbal. Well, when we're going to school, mostly we're taught to listen to the teacher. We will pick up on people if they're very angry, if they're very sad. But if it's not obvious like that, like that we won't uh, necessarily pick that up. One of the analogies that I use for my students is to ask them if they know who Sherlock Holmes was, and, and most do, and if they know who Sherlock Holmes was based on, and most people don't. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was uh, written by Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle, who was trained as an ophthalmologist. When he was a medical student, he would go to lectures by a Dr. Ball, who uh, practiced medicine in London 1860s, 70s, and 80s. And he was practicing what would eventually be called forensic medicine, just like the fictional character Sherlock Holmes was practicing forensics before that was invented. Uh, and 
one of the things that struck uh, Arthur Cannon Doyle was that Dr. Ball would talk about his observations, and then people, and they were British, this was in London, and they would stand up while they were talking, and he would then, after he answered their questions about what he was talking about, tell them all kinds of things about them that he couldn't possibly have known. Mm-hmm. So, who was Sherlock Holmes? He, uh, a stranger would knock on their his door, and he would open it, and he would say, you've just come from Dusseldorf. This is the fictional Sherlock Holmes. And the person will say, we've never met. How could you possibly know that? And Holmes would say, "Um, well, there's some red clay on the outside of your left boot. The only place where there's clay of that color is a 57th Street Wharf. The only thing that docks there is a 237 from Dusseldorf. It's now 415. Therefore, you've just come from Dusseldorf. (laughs) And the person would say astounding Holmes, and and Holmes would uh, say elementary, although actually mm-hmm. he never really said that. But, <clears throat> um, and I trained my students to be medical Sherlock Holmes, to, take, to pay attention to the little nuances um, where people are communicating. It could be as simple as someone not talking but pulling themselves away into a corner, uh, and you have to anticipate that they're thinking that you're a, a threat. And if you just go right up to them, they might think that you're going to hurt them. And one of the other things that I tell uh, my students is that if you're dealing with a human being and communication, you could never make any assumptions. Someone is sitting there, you have no idea how they're uh, experiencing reality. Everyone assumes, well... They look kind of like me. They must be acting like me, and they must be thinking that like me. You can't do that in, in psychiatry. So you, by observations, by talking to them to try to get them open up to see their tone of voice, how they're sitting, how they're looking at you, and how they choose to tell their story, you learn an enormous amount about how their brain is functioning. And if you're lucky enough that they're verbal, you can start getting an idea of how they interact with their environment and whether it works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, then you'll call that pathology. And often those people are miserable and terrified, and those become our patients. And then once we figure that out, the question is how to help them. And there are many, many different ways to help. You know, you speak about observation, and I think that's a really important aspect. When I walk on the street, and when I used to walk on the street in New York, I would see a lot of people talking to themselves, talking to a, a, an air conditioner grate, talking to a telephone pole, and it was easy for me to make the diagnosis of there's possibly a mental disorder. But now, with people with cell phones and little earplugs and things like that, I still see these same people talking to themselves, or what appears that way. <laughs> but as part of observation, you got it. You can't be treating those people; they're just on the phone. But now they have they're a reflection of a different social illness in terms of mindfulness because you'll see those those people talking and they have their phone in their pocket and they're walking and they walk into street signs and they walk into traffic Mm -hmm. because their mind is now in their machine not in their head and they're completely cut off in some ways as much as my patients are Uh, And that's something that we as a society have to learn to cope with. Uh, Not only is it very annoying, but people are starting to get hurt. And they're driving, Mm -hmm. focusing on these conversations, and bad things happen. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting to think about that as possibly will technology and all of these technologies uh, cause a new form of a mental disorder in the future. Well, we're, we're, society's evolving, we're evolving, and um, some of the evolution is adaptive and helpful, and some of it isn't. And, and this is really kind of new for us. Um, there's a lot of technology. Uh, now, most of what we do in psychiatry is medication and talking and educating, but there are other kinds of technology, for instance, electroconvulsive therapy that used to be called shock therapy, which is phenomenal because um, you'll get someone... I remember the first time I saw it. There was a woman who was in her mid-50s. She hadn't eaten for weeks. She hadn't talked to anyone 
in months. She had tubes coming out of every orifice. Uh, the only way that you knew that she was alive was that she had a pulse and she was breathing. Otherwise, she was a statue. And they told me that she was going to give this somewhat elderly lady um, ECT shock therapy. And I was thinking to myself, why are they going to torture this woman? And I had seen uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the Ken mm-hmm. Casey movie, which is a wonderful movie about authority and the abuse of it. Very little to do about psychiatry. Um, but I saw that, and it, you know, it made, as many people, a, a, a terrible impression. And I thought, why are you going to shock this lady? Um, just let her go to a nursing home somewhere. She's a vegetable, but just keep her company. And that's and so... <clears throat> Uh, at that point, it was one of my first two years, and I was doing the medical workups for uh, all the psychiatric patients. So a week later, I saw this woman who I didn't recognize as someone who I had done the history and physical and worked them up medically. Oh, excuse me. Um, and this woman was on the phone making plans to have tea with one of her neighbors. And I was asking the nurse, who is that? Because I couldn't remember seeing her. That was the woman who a week before was wheeled in that I think you might as well give up on her. And that was as close to a miracle as you see in medicine. And just one week, she got her life back. Now, I'm not saying everyone should have electroconvulsive therapy. Far from it. Uh, and there are many new uh, kinds of treatment that are in development. But it's pretty amazing that what we can do now that we couldn't do before when it's done with compassion and intelligence. Mm. Nice. When we talk about the Christina, do you have any questions? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, Jeffrey, uh, you know, mental illness, as you alluded to at the beginning, had uh, various aspects to it that people didn't want to talk about. Families were embarrassed about mm-hmm. it. Uh, you know, we all thought these people were demon, demonized or spirits were in them. What suggestion would you have nowadays for a family if they see that someone in the family is exhibiting signs of uh, abnormal mental behavior? How should they approach that if they've never seen a doctor for it? They're not even sure what it is. What would would be your suggestion? That's a really good question, and and, and it reminds me of... um, one of the consults I did on the medical services in one of my first years. Uh, and it also reminds me about your, your uh, mentioning of imaging studies. But uh, I went into this room and there was a 27-year-old man who had severe depression. He was um, barely moving. Um, the father was saying, you lazy bum, get out of bed. Mom was literally pulling her hair. What did I do wrong to make a son like this? Um, and of course, um, the poor young man was being victimized by his parents to figure out, well, why is he so abnormal? Because mm-hmm. any normal person would just be getting out of bed and doing things. And mm-hmm. so I sat them down, and we had a, a talk. I mean, there's, there's very... There's many ways that you talk about balance within mental health. Um, so one of the, the metaphors, and also there's a certain amount of reality to it, is talking about chemical balances. That someone who has diabetes has a chemical imbalance in their pancreas. Um, we don't say that because they're diabetic, they're evil, they're lazy, uh, they were raised wrong. We say they're sick and we need to help them. So I, I talked to the family about just that kind of uh, understanding. And the stress level in the whole room went down. Mom relaxed. Dad relaxed, and the the poor person who had severe depression, he was no longer being attacked and ostracized by his family. And in terms of imaging, uh, one of the things that we learned that there's something called a PET scan, which shows um, how different parts of your brain are metabolizing sugars, and they light up like light bulbs, and. Uh, what it looks like, and it's one of my favorite images to show students, you you see someone who doesn't have depression, and the brain is is kind of like a house with all the lights turned on. And then you see uh, um, a PET scan of someone who has 
depression, and it looks like a house with almost all the lights turned off. Now, one of the things that we learn from that, that is biochemistry. It's not because that's a lazy person. That person is not eating and can't remember things and is sad because large parts of their brain are literally turned off. So, one, you have to have compassion that, for that person because they haven't done anything wrong. They've inherited those genes that caused that. And then you have to think, okay, your brain is literally turned off. Well, how do you turn it back on again? And there are, there are lifestyle changes like meditation and yoga and tai chi and exercise and sleeping right and avoiding certain drugs, uh, sometimes like caffeine, uh, which we don't really think of as a drug. And then there's talk therapy. And talking the right way and listening the right way can also affect the balance of chemicals in your brain, which is really amazing to think about because that also means that the way that you think about yourself and in a way the way that you talk to yourself can turn your brain on and off. So someone with depression tends to be very negative. Um, their self-esteem disappears. Their sense of the possibilities of life disappears. They, they tend to have be a negativity magnet. So if you can just talk to them without using chemicals and let them understand the distortions of their own thinking, their brain starts lighting up and the depression starts resolving without the use of chemicals. Now, medication is what I'm calling chemicals, are also quite effective. And sometimes someone is so turned off, they can't even talk without that. But so one, you understand that it's a physical illness like diabetes or anything else. And that because of that, it's treatable. And we're not even talking about the spiritual components, and there's certainly a spiritual co component also. I'm not sure I'm qualified to talk about it. But those are the things that I talk to families about. So that one, don't give up hope. <clears throat> there are not only are there many options available now, but new ones are developing all the time. Uh, and two, <clears throat> most of our patients can be helped if you just try and don't give up on them. And those are the things that I talk to families. And so bring them to someone who understand these things, who's not afraid of them. And psychiatry is uh, its own specialty. And even within the medical community, there's prejudice. We, we know uh, there's a horrible fact that people with schizophrenia will often die 25 years earlier than someone mm -hmm. without. And you wonder, well, why is that? Is it because the person is too ill to take care of themselves? Well, possibly. Or is it because they don't look like everyone else, they don't talk like everyone else, they're a little scary, and doctors don't want to have them waiting in their waiting rooms and scaring their regular patients so they don't get treatment? And that's something that we in the medical field have to think about and, and keep us humble uh, to reach out to people who it might take a little bit of extra effort to be empathetic, but they're just sick people like everybody else. So definitely get help. Get Where are help. the places they should go for help? Um, probably what I would do is to tell someone to uh, talk to their family doctor, their priest, whoever they use to uh, make them healthier in everyday life and ask them for a referral. Now, I'm trained in the traditional medical model, so I would usually tell people to talk to your doctor, or if it's something life-threatening, if someone is going to die, uh, then go to the call 911, go to the emergency room right away, let us that deal with that all the time make a mm -hmm. determination. Sometimes people bring... Uh, someone and they think it's life and death and to us it's no not really they're just having a hard time uh, and, and sometimes it's people who just cannot function who shouldn't leave the hospital and need help and so you should let a professional who's experienced with this determine that and then you uh, if you bring it to a doctor emergency room then the doctors there will determine what kind of help they need and, and sometimes they, they you know they're having a thyroid problem and it looks like schizophrenia, but they need thyroid help. Um, and, it, and it's a process of healing and figuring out what happens with the person. But you need to go. So if, if, there's, if it's a life and death issue, call 911 right away. Have them brought to a hospital. Um, hopefully, uh, it's a compassionate hospital and a knowledgeable hospital. And they'll know uh, how to work with someone who's 
chemical balance is so off that they can't function anymore. Very nice. We're speaking with Jeffrey Schwartz, a board-certified physician assistant working in New York, and he's on the front lines of uh, helping people with mental disorders, mental illness. And Jeffrey, we're coming close to the end. Do you have a health tip for us? Uh, I would say be mindful. Um, Try to have a balanced life, including understanding relaxation, and remember to connect both to people around you and with yourself, uh, as well as with your environment. That's what I would say. Uh, Connection, that's very important. Jeffrey, when you were preparing for this, was there anything that we have not discussed that you really wanted to bring up? Oh, there's there's so many stories and so many things um, that happen. I think one of the, the frustrations... Um, of working in medicine is the the social consequences of what the society has allowed to happen. Um, things like homelessness and people who have no insurance and no choices. Mm. And that's very frustrating. So that someone comes in and they have a problem. And I have to ask them about their insurance, which I hate doing, because mm-hmm. depending if on whether they have insurance or not, they have different options. So, and you could talk about that forever. Um, But I think that's relatively well known. And I I think that all of us should always be learning and paying attention and trying to be aware and be aware of people around us who could use a little help and not be afraid to reach out. Very nice. Christina, any thoughts on mental health today? Oh, I need help. No. <laughs> um, there's one thing that I would like to clarify, though, uh, Jeffrey, which is uh, a PA in New York is different. You had explained to me before from a PA in California. So every state um, it has different parameters for your the type of work that you do. So this goes to what is a PA. And I talked a little bit about the training. So the... Um, American Association of Physician Assistants, which is the umbrella group, would say that a PA is a medical professional who's naturally uh, nationally certified, and that's a little C after my name, mm-hmm. uh, and is licensed by each state to practice medicine in that state. Mm-hmm. Um, your authority as a medical practitioner flows from the doctor you're working with. So... Um, I'm not working with a neurosurgeon. I would have no business working in that field, except insofar as people have psychiatric um, consequences of surgery. So, uh, and a a physician assistant is a mid-level provider who works as part of a team. Mm. Um, So, um, there would always be for a physician uh, assistant, a physician somewhere um, not necessarily in the same building, in the same town, um, that you can call if there's a problem. And your responsibilities depend on how much that physician trusts you to do the right thing with patients that they're responsible. And at this point, I do pretty much most of what a psychiatrist will do in my hospital. Mm, And so the question of whether you should see a physician assistant or a doctor, uh, which sometimes comes up, it's a hard one because you're also dealing with a person. So I have, just because of my diverse experiences, a certain approach that I'll bring to any people that I deal with. And also, I have many, many many years of experience. Um, I've seen other psychiatrists or medical doctors who will see someone, make a determination in less than a minute, and then Mm -hmm. leave. Now, I probably could do that, but I would be very unsatisfied with Mm -hmm. that. And maybe just using the analogy, um, I don't know if if, um, people would remember there used to be uh, Hertz and and Avis, and mm. Avis was always trying harder because they were number two. So in a way, I feel like I have to try harder for my patients just to show that, um, that I can help them. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, very nice. 
I'm very grateful to our very special guest, Jeffrey Schwartz, who is a physician assistant, board certified, nationally certified, and on the front lines of mental health and mental illness. He uh, has given us a great introduction into mental health and the, what it's like in this country today and given us some good examples of uh, treatments and ways to go about getting help and just some of his experience. We appreciate your wisdom and experiences sharing with us. I'm also grateful to my teachers and my healers who have allowed me on my journey today. I look forward to getting together with Christina and Magical Medical Tour and all of our viewers and listeners as we meet again next week, searching for another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you so much, Jeffrey Schwartz. Thank and you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I look forward to maybe another conversation at some point. Until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Mm-hmm. Yes, and thank you so much, Jeffrey, and of course, uh, Dr. Woolman, uh, for a wonderful show. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We are grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. Now, you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. And you can connect with Jeffrey Swartz through here on Yoga Hub, um, whether it is scrolling down on the screen and uh, sharing your comments there. And we will, of course, get it over to him um, or giving us a call directly at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And until next time, namaste. Namaste. 